You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts. Welcome to the third episode of Preservation Destination. Today, our guest is Heather Veneziano, owner and operator of Gambrel and Peak. Welcome, Heather. Thank you for having me, Taylor. Sure. Please tell our listeners a little bit about your company and what it is that you do. Okay. I started the company around four years ago, and I specialize in historic structures of the Gulf South, mostly vernacular architecture and cemeteries. So through my company, I work with private homeowners, institutions, nonprofit organizations, depending on what kind of project they need, I step in and we find solutions for them. So kind of a preservation jack of all trades a yes. little bit. Okay. Very much so. <laughs> okay. So your background in education is in materials and fine arts. So you in and then you did preservation. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yep. I did my undergrad in crafts at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. So I specialized in fibers and material studies in that program. And then I got an MFA from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And that was a general fine arts studio-based program. Mm -hmm. So I was able to just go in and build anything I wanted, which was really fun and exciting. And I learned a ton. And then I also went to Tulane for their Masters of Preservation Studies program. So I have the hands-on trade and studio-based knowledge and then more of the theory and practice of preservation. Um, And what what was your path from your education to starting your own preservation business? Wow, that's complicated. (laughs) Uh, I think going back to my education a little bit, it's funny because for my degree show in Scotland, I didn't know I wanted to be involved with preservation at the time. But I ended up building two rooms that looked like you were stepping into an abandoned farmhouse. Mm -hmm. So I think I was on the path unknowingly even from that point. Mm -hmm. So once I figured out that I did want to go back to school again uh, and major in preservation, because I was already doing so many other things prior to the Tulane program, I didn't want to have to give that up. So by starting my own company, I could make my own schedule and fit in all my other interests uh, instead of if I took a full-time job somewhere, I would be locked into that role. And maybe I could work in my studio practice in the evenings or weekends, but for me, that was not enough Mm -hmm. uh, because I never wanted to give it up. I wanted to incorporate it into my preservation work. So having my own company gives me that flexibility, and also I'm able to spend, I hope, most of the time for it to be 50-50 of my studio-based practice and then 50% of my preservation work. Sometimes okay. there's crossover, but mm-hmm. that's the ideal situation. Yeah, me. yeah. Well, I do I do notice this, this is my favorite part to talk about how I stalk everybody online and on their websites and, and Instagram and stuff, mm-hmm. but I, I, I've seen your, the, your weaving that you do with your loom and mm-hmm. I think some pottery that you were doing. Um, so yeah, that's that's really fascinating, and I love the the loom because my mom has a loom. Oh, and so I was like, oh, that's so pretty. And then I call my mom and say, hey, you know, you should use your you should do some weaving because uh-huh. I know somebody does it. It's cool. 
I have two looms right now. The one on that's on Instagram a lot is my bigger one that I got last year, but mm-hmm. it's so big. And I have a home studio, so it takes up a gigantic section yes. of my house. Yeah. It's, it's a weaving width of five feet. Okay. So the loom itself is about seven feet wide uh, and then long. It depends on whether it's collapsed or not, but it's a sizable loom for sure. Well, I, I love the stuff that you've been making. I mean, the stuff that I've seen, is it's really beautiful. Thank so. you. Yeah. So you sort of answered my next question, which was what made you decide to start your own company? Cause, mm-hmm. So you could sort of control your own schedule. But along with that sort of stuff, you've also done some lecturing. Can you tell our guests about, our listeners about that, that you've done? Mm-hmm. In Louisiana, mostly it's based, I've done uh, lectures on gravestone and cemetery um, studies and how to care for cemeteries and gravestones. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I've also lectured on my studio practice internationally. And uh, before moving here, I was a professor at Temple University in the fiber, Fibers and Material Studies program so i love talking so if people want (laughs) me to come and talk i always say yes most of the like pretty much always i have one coming up on september 29th in plaquemines where i'm gonna speak to a nonprofit about caring for their historic cemetery oh nice Mm -hmm. so when did you move to new orleans as Hurricane Isaac was hitting the city and the National Guard was in the streets <laughs> by you all. So September of uh, six years ago, a little over six yeah. years ago. Okay. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. I think I evacuated to my mother's house on the North Shore. I'm trying to remember what we did. I think that's what we did. I'll never forget because I was worried about the house being there, but it was. People were really great. They would come out with poles to hold up the wires over my U-Haul oh, as nice. I went down the street. <laughs> That's crazy. I can't imagine coming here right when all that stuff was happening. What a great, Mm -hmm. great welcome to the city, let me tell you. (laughs) Good preparing (laughs) situation. Yes, yes. So there are some days where it it gets a little rough here. Mm -hmm. Power goes out or you have to boil your water. Definitely. Yeah, that's certainly one of those fun things about the city. So Mm -hmm. one of your other tasks that you're involved with is um, being the co-chair of the Louisiana Chapter of the Association for Gravestone Studies. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about that organization and what they do and what you do in that role? Yeah, um, the Association for Gravestone Studies is an international organization uh, based in Massachusetts. They were founded in the early 1970s, I believe. And for the first couple of years, they were based mainly in New England. So they have a really strong fellowship in New England, but the South is becoming more and more involved. So I became a member around three years ago when I went and spoke at their conference mm-hmm. on work that I did with biopreservation on the Laveau tomb mm-hmm. in St. Louis one. So after that, I got really involved with them because I really loved what they were doing. They do advocacy and education. And it's just a really great group of people who are really willing to share information are really passionate about cemeteries. So because there wasn't that much activity in the South, Florida started a chapter. Texas has had a chapter for a while now, but I thought it was really important for Louisiana to have one because we're dealing with such different cemetery landscapes as the rest of the country. So for people here to have a group that they can go to and say like, we don't really know what we're doing. We need (laughs) some help. And we're all doing it volunteer basis. And we just want to be able to provide people with the right information. So 
I started a chapter with Amanda Walker from State Rest Cemeteries mm-hmm. and Jason Church from the National Center of Preservation Technology and Training in Natchitoches, yeah. the National Park Service. So the three of us are the co-chairs, and we started not this June, but the June before. So mm-hmm. we're a little over a year old. We've had two events so far, and then in October, beginning of October, we're hoping to have another event outside of Lafayette. So every year we're trying for at least two or three mm-hmm. events and just trying trying to gain different memberships and have people be excited about it. And then hopefully it'll become bigger and bigger. It'll be a, a statewide resource mm-hmm. for people just looking for answers on how what the best, best practices are for cemetery maintenance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I signed up to get the newsletter and you Mm -hmm. know did all the stuff after I saw that you were doing that and then of course everything that y'all have planned has run into something else that I you know I was Uh like I think I was out of town when you had the conference at the end of last year I think maybe the beginning of this year I'm trying to remember when it was they have their national conference every June so I didn't go this year because it was up in Connecticut and I Mm -hmm. couldn't get away for that long but the national conferences, if ever if you have the opportunity to go to one, they're fantastic. They yeah. have lectures and they have uh, hands-on demo uh, demonstrations, just tons of really valuable information. I was uh, lucky to, to take a class with, with Jason mm-hmm. um, in February. It was a disaster mitigation in historic cemeteries over in, um, yeah. it was an African-American cemetery in Houston. Mm-hmm. And that I, I learned you know new things that I I didn't know because from what I studied same program that you did but many years ago was all tomb repair and I hadn't had any really like hands-on stuff on actually like stones Mm -hmm. and so that you know that was sort of interesting because it was like three and a half days out in cold February (laughs) in Houston which you think you know like Houston how cold can it get it actually was it was pretty cold and rainy when we were there Uh and um it was just resetting Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff in that cemetery and just, um, you know, the history of the area, which was really fascinating. I didn't know that he was a co-chair with you. Yeah, Jason's great. He's a pretty smart guy. He knows this stuff Mm -hmm. for sure. Maybe someday I'll get to have him on as a guest. Yeah. That would be great. I would love that. And then, um, you know, maybe hopefully Michelle from Bayou Preservation Mm -hmm. that you talked about because uh, Sarah and I talked about that when I interviewed Sarah Mm -hmm. being part of that crew. So, yeah, that's cool. That's very exciting. So I'm going to segue into a little bit more cemetery stuff since we're kind of talking on that subject. Uh, So you're also involved in an online database of surveys of New Orleans cemeteries, surveys that were done in the 1980s. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? And so right now they've got St. Louis number one and two in beta. Mm -hmm. So it's, is it available for the public yet or is it still testing? It's still in the testing phase right now. It's going to live on the website of the historic New Orleans collection. Okay. But we're still working out a couple kinks with the files because some of the work was done by UPenn students a few years ago and it just doesn't match up properly with the other files. It's just a lot of technical computer things that I don't know too much about, (laughs) but they're working on it. Yeah. So it the surveys are from nineteen eighty to eighty three, I believe. And it was of nine historic cemeteries in New Orleans. And it was a joint effort between Save Our Cemeteries and the Historic New Orleans Collection. And then up until this point, it 
all has lived at the collection and you can access it through microfilm at the Williams Research Center, Mm -hmm. but it's not available digitally. So we really wanted that information to be able to be seen by everyone, especially because our style of architecture in our cemeteries is so closely aligned with, say, the cemeteries of Latin America right. and, and France and Spain. So to be able to have a dialogue with place with people in those places about the style of architecture that we have, the conservation issues we're dealing with, I think it'll be a really valuable tool moving forward. So we were able so far to digitize the survey information for St. Louis 1 and 2, and then the next phase of the project will be Lafayette 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. So we'll go through and digitize all those nine historic cemeteries. And then in the future, even further along than that, is trying to make it kind of a one-stop shop for cemeteries in New Orleans. So we'll have contemporary survey information for the different cemeteries. Mm -hmm. We'll have uh, different historical photographs and maps. So people can log on and pretty much access the timeline of the cemeteries, which Mm -hmm. will be really fantastic yeah yeah that would be it's great. a long it's a long road to get yeah. there it, it sounds like it's in in sort of like funding like purgatory waiting on some more money to move forward maybe with the project or? well the collection right now they're just finishing up construction on that huge new building where right. they're gonna have a lot of stuff so i think a lot of it is waiting for that to be done because they're so busy and then for the first phase i wrote a grant and we were able to get money for that but I've not even begun the grant writing yet for the second phase until things calm down with right. them. Yeah. We have the time and resources because it's a lot of work because we, in the 1980s surveys, they took at least one photograph of every single tomb and then they did the survey note, they made survey note cards where they wrote down information. So the survey note cards are either written or typed and you have to, physically transcribe all of that into an online presence so it's a lot of cards each cemetery has hundreds and hundreds of tombs so we go in a lot of the volunteers for the first phase either were from saber cemeteries or interns that the collection has had in the past from a university in paris oh wow so it's just slow going because somebody needs to sit there and physically enter in all of that data Mm -hmm. so but it will get there eventually yeah just need a lot more volunteers (laughs) so is there so in in addition to to transferring the data to where it's online are is the project taking current photographs to to sort of compare so at this point for st louis one we have For St. Louis II, we have a more contemporary UPenn survey that's also on there. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we're not reaching out and trying to take new photos, but that is something we want to do in the future. Mm-hmm. At this point, you're able to search by any number of search fields. So you have like name of the name on the tablet, dates, language that the tablet's in. There's a whole list. Or you can search through... Uh, linked google map so Mm -hmm. you could search per tomb because these are both catholic cemeteries the new orleans catholic cemeteries just invested in a 360 cemetery web viewer oh wow so we'll have a link to their website where you can 
it's kind of a tour of the cemetery, just yeah. digi- digital. So that's also going to be linked in. So you can visit kind of and see what things yeah. are like, but from afar. Yeah, that's that's really a lot of components <laughs> coming yeah. together. It's lots to juggle. Yeah. And and for our listeners that that may not be familiar, St. St. Louis number 1 is the the cemetery that's at the edge of the French Quarter. That's sort of the big sort of more touristy one. Of course, now you you have to be part of a tour to go into it. It's not open to the public anymore, but um that one is sort of the more famous one and then then the Lafayette number 1 is is in the Garden District. Um, across the street from Commander's Palace, uh, which is my favorite cemetery, but I'm kind of partial to it because I did some work in there for the field school that I did. And, you know, so, and that one's just, to me, with all the trees and, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like more beautiful. I feel like St. Louis number one sort of uh, hot, I guess, because there's not a lot of shade. There's not a, a lot yeah. of room for trees in there. Right. It's so yeah. filled with tombs. It's, it's a little packed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the oldest existing cemetery in New Orleans. So every every square foot of that cemetery is pretty much inhabited by a tomb. But yeah. And that's one of the ones where it's you don't really see a lot of new burials because you have to have family really it has to be a family tomb they don't allow new because there's like you said there's no space Mm -hmm. in there and i think lafayette's probably pretty similar it is if you're looking for something newer you'd probably want to go out to maybe greenwood or metairie Mm -hmm. cemeteries for for new burials or a new tomb so you answered my next question uh you know the part about save our cemeteries sounds like they're still sort of involved in it maybe a little bit mm-hmm. and and of course that's how I met you uh-huh. first time was volunteering um, to do some work in in Lafayette number one so that's pretty cool and then I think the next part that I was going to ask you about we're going to step away from cemeteries a little bit even though you know those are like one of my favorite things to talk about yeah (laughs) I mean could talk about it all day but there are other projects you do other things Uh so recently you've been doing a lot of writing you worked in conjunction with the Louisiana Landmark Society to write uh, Gateway to New Orleans the Bayou St. John book Louisiana Landmark Society is a local organization that uh, they manage the Petot House which is on Bayou St. John and they also do a New Orleans nine most endangered uh, list every year of the buildings that they would like to see preserved, the ones that are most at risk. And uh, just a great, great organization, been around for a long time. You know, people will argue with you about if you say Pito or Pitot. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's sort of an ongoing thing. Um, when Susan McClamrock was the house director and when I did uh, my internship there, she was like, we say P-taught. So that's how I say it. Mm-hmm. And then some people will argue with me, but, you know, whatever floats your boat. Mm-hmm. So anyway, can you tell us ab- ab- about the book, the parts that you worked on? You know, from, from what I understand, you were originally brought in to work on just a small part, and then that expanded towards the end of the project? Mm-hmm. So the book came out mid-June of mm-hmm. this year, so it's not been out very long. We're still doing different events throughout the city to promote it. Saying that, it, we started working on it less, well, really, I was brought on officially in October, but I started talking to Mary Lou. Mary Lou Kristovich, uh was the lead on the book, so she was a co-editor and the sp- a major sponsor of the book and she's the one that really set the ball rolling with everything 
So I started talking to her about it in last August, and then I was officially brought on in October, as I said, in and only a few months prior, about in May, is when her and some other members of the team started. So the whole turnaround for the book was That's very just quick. a tiny, yeah, yeah, it was the fastest book I've ever heard of. <laughs> so the book encompasses the history of the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. the boundaries are Broad Street to Moss, both, si- both sides of Bayou St. John, mm-hmm. Moss, and then Esplanade to Orleans and Mary Lou had the idea for the book starting in the 1970s Mm -hmm. she had to shelve it this is it's like a book pun which I didn't realize I was going to make uh in 1982 because of different family issues she was having Mm -hmm. and then last year she decided to revisit it because it was something that she really wanted to see accomplished so she recruited Robert Brantley the photographer Mm -hmm. to do the photographs for the book and Hillary Irvin to do some of the architectural history of the book, and then also Stephanie Bruno to do uh, more of the architectural history and helping out with uh, Hillary's section. So the three of those, the three of them were brought on that spring, and then I was brought on late summer, early fall. So Mary Lou at that time knew, Mary Lou at the time she was 80. she turned 89 as the book was progressing but she realized that she was falling ill and she wanted to make sure that this book was completed Mm -hmm. so she brought me on to help manage it originally and then Mary Lou was a very very convincing person and you weren't allowed really to say no to her and if you decided (laughs) to say no it was always this big issue Mm -hmm. that turned into a battle of wills so I was brought on initially to help her just get everything together and push it forward so she can get it done in the timeline that she wanted originally the deadline for the book was december 1st which we all kind of knew was impossible that was way too quick and then probably a month in she asked me to also write a chapter of the book Mm -hmm. detailing the early history of the neighborhood in the pre-colonial early colonial period and I said, okay, because it's easier to say okay to her than right. no. Uh, <laughs> and so I did that. I started working on that using, in the beginning, mainly her notes that she had started gathering in the 70s, which were at the uh, Historic New Orleans collection. Mm-hmm. So I would go in there, research, read what she wrote, go back to her in the evenings and talk it out. And then... Once I got a solid foundation, I started bringing in other sources and fleshing out the chapter. And then as the fall went along, she realized that the health issues she was dealing with probably wouldn't allow her to finish the book. Mm -hmm. And that ended up unfortunately being true. And she passed on Christmas Day of last year. So we were left with this book that we all promised her we would get done and we held true to that promise. We we worked. She passed away that morning. I got the call from her daughter, and we all started work. We took that day off. It was Christmas, mm-hmm. even though she would have liked us not to, probably. <laughs> and we started, we continued working the very next day. Mm-hmm. We worked through her service. We worked through everything because we knew how important it was to her. We all promised her it would get done. So 
Then our deadline turned into February 1st. Mm -hmm. So Robert Brantley and I traveled to Lafayette then, and we handed in everything to the publisher, which is the University of Louisiana at Lafayette Press, Mm -hmm. and worked with them for the next month or two to get everything finalized. But it was a... It was such a fast process. If I went into it knowing everything that it involved, I probably wouldn't have done it in the beginning just because it was such a whirlwind. It still doesn't even feel real. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a stunning book. I mean, I, I picked up a copy of it when, when you had your lecture at the Historic New Orleans Collection, and, and the, the photographs mm-hmm. are just amazing of, of all the architecture in the houses. It's just It's just a great... It's just a great resource to have. It's really interesting to get that unique history of the, of the specific neighborhoods and and they have it for sale right mm-hmm. at the at the Petot House. Yep, and through the Louisiana Landmarks website as well. Okay, so people yeah, people could order it. That's the other thing. There's like over. I know because I designed the book according to what Mary Lou wanted. So that was another part of my role, having to go through every page and decide where everything goes and make yeah. sure it matches up with text, which you cannot possibly do in that time period and i managed to do i don't even know how but over 300 photographs it's really richly illustrated with robert's photos and Mm -hmm. then archival images from even some from france and the netherlands actually we gathered them from all over the world Mm -hmm. and then a lot locally in different louisiana collections but it's a great resource because it shows not only contemporary views but also historical images that people rarely if ever have seen before yeah yeah that's really it's really interesting because we we used to live we used to live uh, we were a block off of moss street so Mm -hmm. we you know we used to i spent a lot of time walking up and down that area and then you know of course doing work at the piton house i spent a lot of time over there too and and it's interesting to see like going through the book and being like I know where that is or I know where that used to be that's not there anymore mm-hmm. and learning stuff about the houses that I walked past you know a hundred times and never realized so mm-hmm. it, it's I, I would like to go back over there with it and sort of walk and uh-huh. and point out things and like um, you know because obviously we don't live there anymore as much as I, I think I landmarks like is even having I think they have tours right now where mm-hmm. they do kind of point out different things that are in the book that neighborhood is so interesting mm-hmm. I had not known well not nearly as much as I know now about it before but it being the oldest neighborhood in the city is really fascinating and something a lot of people don't know that mm-hmm. it predates the French Quarter by 10 years mm-hmm. is kind of a crazy thought because everyone you're just if you think about historic New Orleans you think of the French Quarter immediately but really there's this whole other part of the city that is even older Mm -hmm. and you know for our listeners that may not be aware Bayou St. John is a a waterway it it was a natural waterway of course now it's been all altered and everything but um that connects Lake Pontchartrain with the Mississippi River and it was used to move goods back and forth and there were houses and plantations and other things along the waterway there and now it's just a really nice pretty fairly mm-hmm. pricey neighborhood oasis <laughs> yes city, it is it mm-hmm. is right there by the park it, it, it is kind of like an oasis it's really nice and then you have the lafayette number three is right there mm-hmm. i mean i'm sorry st louis number three st louis three. yeah is right there which is uh, also another stunning cemetery. And that's on what was one of the original land tracks 
of the early concessions. That's one of the footprints, well, part of a footprint, like the earliest colonial habitation. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really cool. So neat. Mm-hmm. Every every little neighborhood here has <laughs> just like the greatest interesting stories. It does. Um, you know, even even the Carrollton neighborhood where we're at has some really interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, beyond the book, you're currently working on a pocket guide to New Orleans cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm uh, illustrating and writing it, and it's going to be published through Antenna, a local print house and artist-based gallery. They do tons of different stuff and really great programming for the arts, for photography, and for pretty much they have. A, of different stuff going on but Mm -hmm. the they have two other pocket guides that they've already published one is about the new orleans pharmacy museum Mm -hmm. and then one is about just birds you will encounter in new orleans (laughs) so they asked me if i wanted to do one and they said i could could do it about whatever I wanted whatever Mm -hmm. topic and I was like of course I'm gonna pick the cemeteries because that's where my heart is so I'm doing that right now and it'll have answers to commonly asked questions in the beginning with illustrations of different styles of tombs and then a fold-out map in the middle showing you all the active cemeteries of New Orleans and where they're located and then the back will be by neighborhood so you'll Mm -hmm. be if you come here from Cincinnati and you are staying in mid-city and you want to know what cemeteries are close by you can just check it out in the back and see whichever neighborhood you're in and it'll point you to the closest cemeteries wow mm-hmm. that's that sounds really cool is that that's you've been doing those um sketches uh-huh so i'm doing stippling stippling but yes. it's taking forever it does take forever <laughs> it takes forever <laughs> it's like millions of little dots over and over to make tomb drawings but i don't know i'm a because I'm a, I just love like, tedious things and torturing myself. I'm a weaver. <laughs> it's like all these things. You just need a lot of patience. So that, but yeah, that's how I'm doing all the tomb drawings. So mm-hmm. it's taking a lot longer yeah. than I thought. The maps will be different, but all the tomb drawings are are stippling. Yeah. Well, that does those always turn out really cool though. So I hope so. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I, mean, I think, <laughs> I think they look neat. I Thank mean, you. yeah, that's my personal opinion, but are, um, are you doing anything? So we're right here by, um, this is Carrollton cemetery. Uh huh. Are you including that one in your pocket guide at yep, all? Or? That'll be in there. Okay. Yeah. It's, I was looking through and it's interesting because there's so many books about New Orleans cemeteries, but there's not really a guide that tells you these are all the cemeteries. These are every cemetery, and this is how you can visit it, and this is where it is. So right. I was like, this will be a really, hopefully, useful tool for people. So Carrollton's in there, pretty much all the active ones. The inactive, I'm not putting in just because there's really not space. I would need right. another volume. The, cem- the cemeteries of this city are there's quite high in number. Mm-hmm. So for now, this book is just focusing on the active ones yeah i think there's 40 something yeah um, it's a lot it's a lot yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely and then a lot of them you know like like the Carrollton. this is number one i guess and then you go back another block and it's number two and so it's it's like tucked right here in this neighborhood it's just one little block mm-hmm. and you know if you if you didn't drive by it you would never never realized it was there i didn't know it was there until i moved in over Mm -hmm. here (laughs) and so you know and that's i of course i love living a block away because that's just great you just go down there and take pictures and walk around and everything but 
And I think there's a lot that are sort of like sneaky mm-hmm. that you don't you don't realize. You see the big ones from the highway, maybe on ten or going out of the city. You know, you see the St. Louis ones on the edge of the French Quarter. But there's all these other ones that are hidden. In I had to add pockets. one to Google Maps because I wasn't even on it. Oh my gosh, it was that hidden? But I told I shouldn't have probably, but I did tell Google where it was, so now <laughs> other people can find it, and I just can't have it to myself. Uh, but there are there are hidden little spaces mm-hmm. throughout the city. It's interesting how they just they're so much a part of the neighborhood you don't even realize they're there most of the time. Yeah, I think people just get used to being across the street from them or walking by them and you don't even think about it really the tricky thing is a lot of them have multiple names or have changed names over time yeah so a lot of the research that i've had to do is like figuring out what is the official name how do people know it what name by if people are trying to find it if they're going to ask someone will they know it by that name or not right so some of them have like two or three names especially some of the jewish cemeteries have multiple names mm-hmm it's just figuring out how to present that all in a way that makes sense and is useful. Yeah, I can imagine that's that's been a big project. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited to see it. That that sounds like I'm excited to be done <laughs> <laughs> these drawings. Yeah, it sounds like a great great project. Um, Thanks. So I I'm, I want to ask you some questions about a, sort of your favorite things. Like what are what's your favorite part about working on the projects that you've been working on? And do you think you prefer writing and research versus hands-on projects? Or do you like them equally? Or? Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with that and then go backwards. Okay. <laughs> so I like them equally. And that's a great thing and also a really challenging thing mm-hmm. because I try to have it be half and half. And that's another thing about having my own company, trying to have half my work be research. I love research. And... I could easily just do research all the time, but I ha- I'm a tactile person and I need to be building stuff and doing things. So I try my best to work my schedule out so it's 50-50 because if I do one thing, I'm going to miss the other one mm-hmm. way too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for preservation jobs, my favorite thing is you start off with one thing and then you quickly fall down this rabbit hole right. of all these other things that you never even thought existed. Or if you did, you're like, that's not something that would interest me. And then you find out, no, I'm actually obsessed with that. I didn't know before. And just the people that you meet because they all, everyone in the field of preservation, especially in Louisiana that I've met, we all get to this point from really interesting places. Yeah, And most people never anticipate being in this world and then we just end up here and Mm -hmm. we have everyone i've met has had like really interesting background stories and then what they're interested in is always fascinating because you might meet a historic homeowner who's also like a master violinist or something just really random things that help to inform of why preservation is important and what draws people to it because people come from such various backgrounds Mm -hmm. into it yeah, I know I there are people that I know that are people that came from architecture backgrounds, which is, you know, fairly typical, but then people that that come from, you know, all kinds of different places or that went on to do other things, like uh, somebody that I went to school with, I think went on to do went to law school after she did, mm-hmm. you know, the program here. So you you get all all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just really fascinating. And I think 
And the really interesting stories are the people that sort of fall into it by accident, by mm-hmm. maybe buying an old house or, you know, just getting into it for some reason. Maybe they were into genealogy and then started looking for family members in a cemetery and then got really engrossed in, like, cemetery history. Mm-hmm. And that that's sort of like, you know, this podcast is kind of for those. That's who I would like to kind of get the get listening you know, I, I want people to know that preservation's not all like little old ladies, you know, raising money to save the covered bridge. You know, like it's it's more than it's more than that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and different people from different backgrounds can touch it in different ways and have different experiences. And and it's and it really is almost a part of our everyday life in some senses. Is. Yeah. yeah. Especially in a place, obviously in a place like New Orleans, you see it a lot. But even in, in other cities, you still you still get it. Um, you know, the, in, there's a building in downtown Atlanta that's sort of, it's an old, I don't even know the history of the building. I just know it's there. It's an old house. And it's right in the middle of this block and it's surrounded by like 40-story glass skyscrapers. Uh-huh. And this little house is That's still there. House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like, and and it's. I, I want to say it's owned by the art museum, by the High in Atlanta, but I could be wrong. And it, it's just fascinating because it's like this juxtaposition of this old with this new. And I focus a lot on on buildings and cemeteries because that's what I'm interested in, you know, in architecture. But it's more than that. It's parks. It's mm-hmm. public spaces, Landscapes. landscaping statuary uh, you know all kinds of things that anything that that you want to save for future generations is... I think also just like the tangible aspects of it and I think cemeteries are a good example if you look at a name on a stone it's like that might be the only record of that person or it might not and mm-hmm. you can research that name and then you find out the most amazing history of this amazing individual that you wouldn't have known otherwise. So it's a great way to learn about the past, but also learn about people and individuals, and it ties us to place and just informs so many things. Mm -hmm. I'm always just kind of astounded at how much I learn just through the process of being in the field. Yeah, and how everything's sort of connected Mm -hmm. in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so on that note, do you have any advice for our listeners that might be interested in getting into preservation in one way or another? I think one thing is everyone that I've met so far in the field has been really open and knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're interested in any aspect of it, you find somebody that's working on that and you just shoot them an email or call them and nine times out of ten, they're going to be they're going to be receptive to that and want to talk to you Mm -hmm. and then I think the more questions you ask the better Mm -hmm. I'm always asking questions I laugh because my first word was why (laughs) that was my first word and I just keep going with it because Mm -hmm. the world is such a fascinating place and I think if you're interested in anything even not just limited to preservation finding experts in the field and people that are doing the things that you would dream of doing Mm -hmm. and talk to them and say, how did you get here? Do you like it? What are the pros and cons of this? And when somebody's really passionate about what they do, they're going to want to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the best thing. Because so many people, my students in the past, have always been so nervous about asking people they don't know questions. And I was like, that's fine. You could ask them. It's, It's good to ask. You'll learn stuff and they'll probably learn 
by telling you through the process. So I think that would be my best bit of advice is just to go and ask questions and get other people's opinions about things. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel like most of the people that I've met in preservation have been just very open and, and wonderful at answering questions and just being shoot shoot me an email and tell me what you need you know if you're not sure you have questions and everybody's just always so nice and friendly Mm -hmm. which is great and I I don't know if you always get that in other professions so I think we all want to see everything succeed right so if you have a house and it's falling apart and you're just feeling so overwhelmed we don't want that house to fall down. So right. we're going to tell you. We're going to give you the name of somebody that could help you or figure out some way to get you on track. Because if we could all succeed, that's like the best case scenario ever. Mm-hmm. I think just asking for help and for advice is the best thing to do. Yeah, first step for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, find somebody that loves it and let them talk to you. Yeah, <laughs> Or talk at you, as the case may be sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I feel like that sometimes. But I'm, I'm constantly a co-worker of mine just bought a house and they're doing work on. And I'm like, you need a window person? I know a window person. Mm-hmm. You need a floor person? I know a floor person. Mm-hmm. Like, I can put you with the right people. Let's make this nice. Like, don't, don't tear it up and make it sad. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think that's all the questions I had for you. I just want to finish up with, you know, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Where can they find you on social media? On social media, I have an Instagram account. It's third class relic, third spelled out as a word. Uh, And I post there. That also has a link to my website, which is gambrelandpeak.com. And then my email also is accessible through my website. So yeah, if anyone, and if you are interested in getting into the field and you have questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you. So if you shoot me an email, I'm happy to answer any questions that you have about it. All right. Well, thank you very much for being our guest today, Heather. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guest's information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.